Well, it is um, a little strange. It's mixed emotions that we have this morning as we come to the end of this wonderful study of Colossians, but it has been a great journey, and we are not done. Paul has more to say to us, or the Spirit does through Paul's words. Uh, But just quickly, some of you have asked where are we headed next, and so let me give you a, a preview of where I believe we are headed. Next week, I'm going to do a message on evangelism, as I promised a few weeks ago as we talked about that subject. And then it's my hope to uh, launch into a short series on the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, what is the biblical role and understanding of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. Uh, Then we'll have a short Christmas series and hopefully get into the book of Hebrews after the first of the year. So a verse-by-verse study of Hebrews So you can be praying about those things and preparing your own heart and mind. If you turn to Colossians chapter 4, I hope that you've had the opportunity at some point in your life to visit a church in a foreign country. And if you haven't had that opportunity, I hope that you will. By God's grace, I have been blessed to travel to several places on mission trips to see faithful believers around the world in different contexts with different languages and different cultures And I always am blessed by my time with them just to see how God is faithfully building his church across the world. And there's one particular experience that continues to be burned in my mind. It was my my first cross-cultural experience in Kenya. Right after I graduated seminary, I had the privilege to go to Kenya on a mission trip. Uh, We were going around in local churches and rural areas across the Kenyan countryside to train local pastors uh, it was a, a wonderful time, but my, our first church that we went to, we, it was a couple-hour drive in this minivan across roads that are very loosely called roads with potholes, and by the end of the day, literally, you're sore all over from head to toe from driving on these roads, and we come up this mountaintop to this, this look like a mountaintop, maybe a hillside, to this church that's built out of cement blocks with dirt floors, no air conditioning, and we get out of the van, begin to walk towards the church, and I'm captured by this, this sound, the sound that I can hear, and it's coming from the church. And so as we walk towards the church, we peek our head into the door, and there are about 30 children assembled there with a few adult leaders singing to the top of their lungs. And they're singing a song of welcome to us, that we're welcome in the name of the Lord. And then they begin to sing worship songs together in unison with harmony Uh, These little beautiful children with no shoes, tattered clothes on these dirt floors with smiles from ear to ear singing to us in the name of the Lord. And it was all I could take. I, I went out behind the church and found a quiet place and just wept before the Lord. I was overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed for a number of reasons, but the primary thing that overwhelmed me was the bigness of our God. Here I am, a little country boy from East Texas with very little exposure at that time outside of my bubble, and here God is doing his gospel work across the world, saving people in different languages, every tribe, nation, and tongue. God is busy at work. Sometimes I think we can become a little insulated and perhaps jaded in our perspective when we only think about our little local church, and don't get me wrong, I'm very thankful for our local church and what God is doing here. But we can begin to sort of have an Elisha complex, if you will, like we are the, the last remnant. You know, the, the, we're, we're hanging on just till Jesus comes back. But when you get to get out and see there are faithful churches spread across not only the country but the world, we remember that God is still at work 
that Jesus is faithful to build his church. He has not been stifled. He has not been stopped. He will not grow weary, and his plans will not be thwarted. And we're reminded of that as we look at the book of Colossians because here is a man in the Apostle Paul who's sitting in a Roman prison cell and yet he's thinking and praying about churches that are hundreds of miles away. Multiple churches, not just one local church, but Paul is is concerned with what God is doing in the scope of his ministry through the local church. He's writing to these churches to encourage them, for them to remain steadfast in the truth, as we have seen, as they stand up against false doctrine. And it's a reminder to us, even this morning as we close out this letter, to, to... Be grateful for what God is doing here in our local context, yes, but not to forget that God is at work beyond the walls of this church across the world. And as we have opportunity, we want to be involved in that and have fellowship with other faithful believers and faithful workers for the sake of the kingdom. With that in mind, turn with me to chapter 4 again, and we're going to read the closing words of the Apostle Paul as we've already read a few times now, beginning in verse 7 through verse 18. Colossians 4, verse 7, Paul writes, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Then to our text for this morning. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, And you, for your part, read my letter that's coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. As Wade mentioned earlier, this is the theme that we've been unpacking from this last section in the letter to the Colossians. That our union with Christ produces a commitment to Christ, gospel service, and other believers. And we will see that yet again this morning. As we've already mentioned, this last section, beginning in verse 7, breaks down into three parts. We've looked at the first two parts. Part 1, we saw authorized messengers in verses 7 to 9, that God sent Tychicus and Onesimus to bring this letter to the Colossians and to encourage them. And then in part two, we started in verse 10 with heartfelt greetings. And we've, we've seen two different sets of greetings, and we'll see a third this morning. We saw greetings from Jewish brothers. Paul says that these men, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus Justice, were the only Jewish believers with him at that time serving alongside him. 
And then we heard from Epaphras last week, beloved Epaphras, the one that likely planted the church there in Colossae. And he obviously has deep affection for them. And so he shares his greetings and his love for them and his prayers on their behalf. But now as we come to the close of this section, we'll see one more group of of two individuals who send their greetings. And we'll learn some things from their lives and then move on to Paul's final instructions to the Colossians. So let's look at this third set of greetings from Gentile brothers. We've seen Jewish brothers. We've seen Epaphras, who is a Gentile, but he gets his own section there from Paul. And now two more Gentile brothers add their greetings to the others. There, back in your text, in verse 14, he begins with the name Luke. Luke. Now, Luke is a man in Scripture that that most of us are probably fairly familiar with. As we look at the New Testament, it becomes clear that Luke was a very faithful Gentile man who was unwavering in his consistent friendship with Paul, but beyond that, in his consistent care for the ministry that Paul was involved in. Paul just gives one little description of this man here. He calls him the beloved physician. Obviously, we learn that Paul has great affection for him. He calls him beloved or beloved, but we also learn his occupation. Luke was a doctor. Now, that's a fact that most of us pick up from childhood, that Luke was a doctor, but you would think that's mentioned all over the place in Scripture, but as it turns out, this is the only text that tells us that he was a physician. It's here at the end of Colossians, Luke was a medical professional, which obviously would have been helpful to Paul. Paul obviously traveled through remote areas from church to church. We know that he was beaten several times, shipwrecked at least once. Um, He he spent a, a, a night at sea. He needed a doctor, right? And so it was helpful to have this man. But I think if you asked Paul, the thing that was most encouraging about Luke was not necessarily his skills as a physician, but his committed faithfulness to the apostle himself and the ministry that Paul was involved in. We know that Luke was a gifted writer and researcher because we have his writings inspired by the Holy Spirit in our New Testament. Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke, of course, and also the book of Acts. And so when you take those two books together just by volume, they take up a large percentage of our New Testament. We have those from the pen of Luke inspired by the Holy Spirit. You know, it's interesting, though, with all that Luke wrote and how great a man he was, we actually have very little knowledge about the man himself. Instead, Luke seems to be that guy that's just always there behind the scenes, a constant friend, a constant companion, and a committed Christian. Everyone needs a Luke in their life. Just to understand how consistent Luke's presence was in Paul's ministry, all you have to do is read the book of Acts, and when you get get past his first missionary journey and begin chapter 16, you'll notice the pronoun we starts to pop up. What that indicates is that the author was there with the, the other men seeing these things or experiencing these things, and the author, of course, is Luke. And when you look at that, you realize, starting with Paul's second missionary journey, Luke was there. Luke was faithful. He stood by Paul's side. He went with him everywhere he would go, ministering to him and to others. But perhaps the most telling passage in the New Testament about the faithfulness of this man, Luke, comes to us in Paul's final letter, in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, we come to Paul's later years. He's Paul the aged. He's 
He's fought the good fight. He's run the race. And he sees now the finish line of death is in front of him. He knows that he will not escape this last imprisonment. And in 2 Timothy, we're, we're, we're told that he's asking Timothy to come to him, to visit him. And he describes his circumstances in that process. Now, in Colossians, remember, we have a lot of men that are around uh, the, the ministry of Paul that are, that are helping him. But in 2 Timothy verse four, or chapter 4, verse 11, he says this, Only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. Through it all, to the bitter end, it seems that Paul could always count on at least one man to be with him. And it was the beloved physician, Luke. I think we can take from that just a call to us as believers to be faithful to one another, to stand alongside one another in ministry as we serve together through the trials and tribulations of life as persecution comes. May we stand together and be faithful as this beloved physician was to Paul. May we be faithful to one another. Now, very simply, Luke just sends his greetings. It says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his Greetings. He adds his greetings to those of the other men. And now Paul mentions one final individual that is with him. It's a man named Demas. Demas. Of all the eight ministry companions that Paul has mentioned so far, his words about Demas are the shortest. In fact, he doesn't really give any words about Demas. He just says, and also Demas. And because of that, we might be tempted to think that there's really not much for us to say about Demas and we should just move on. But we, of course, have a gift that Paul and the other Christians at that time did not have. We have the rest of the New Testament. We have it here bound up for us on the pages of Scripture. You have it in your lap or on your phone. We praise God for that. And there are some other passages that mention this man, Demas, that give us helpful information about him. First of all, Demas is mentioned in the book of Philemon. Which, if you've been with us, you know that makes sense. Philemon was written from the same prison cell. In fact, Tychicus probably brought that with Onesimus, that letter to Philemon, with this letter to the Colossians. So there were contemporary letters. At the end of Philemon, he says this about Demas and other men that are with him. Philemon 23 and 24. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. Now, you'll recognize some of those names because we've been through them. But notice what I want you to see is the description that he gives of all of these men. He calls them my fellow workers. That is, at least at this time, at the time that Colossians and Philemon were written, this man Demas was a faithful man in the eyes of Paul. He was serving alongside Paul in his ministry. But unfortunately, that's not the end of the story for Demas. Because as we come to... Paul's later years, again to 2 Timothy, his final letter, he's actually in the very same text that we read earlier when we said that Luke was the only one with him. He mentions Demas as well. I intentionally skipped over that until now. But look back at 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 9, and listen to what he says about Demas. He's speaking to Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark with you, for he is useful to me for service. Now, this is a very powerful, impactful 
passage, now that we've studied the background of some of these men that are mentioned here, we see their lives coming and colliding in the future. From the standpoint of Colossians, 2 Timothy is in the future. And we see many of the men mentioned again. We see Mark here, and we see an, another affirmation of the fact that Paul had been restored to Mark, and Mark is useful to him now for ministry. And as we said earlier, Luke is the only one physically with him in this second imprisonment. But these other men that have gone out from him have gone out not in the sense of of leaving him, but in the sense of being sent out. They are out ministering. They're out sharing the gospel or, or, or overseeing churches, all except one. Sadly, Paul explains to Timothy that the once faithful and fellow worker Demas has deserted him and apparently the ministry with it. The reason that we come to that conclusion, that dire conclusion, is because of the description that Paul gives of the reason for Demas's departure. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, listen to how he describes the reason behind Demas's leaving. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Now, we're not told the specifics of how that manifested itself in Demas's life, but at some point, Demas weighed out the difficulties of, of ministry, the difficulties of, of persecution and staying alongside the Apostle Paul and the comforts and perhaps the pleasures and ease of this temporal life. And he said, I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm going home. I don't want to follow this way anymore. Unlike Mark, as we mentioned, who came back, who was restored, this is the last mention of Demas. The Apostle John warns us of the danger of the love of the world. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. He says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that it is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Understand that to love this world in Scripture is more than just wanting a comfortable life. It involves that, certainly. But based on what John says and what Jesus will say, to love the world is to be captivated by the pleasures that this world offers. Jesus himself says this clearly in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. It says, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And here, really, we have the heart of the gospel message. This is why it's so important for us as Christians when we share the gospel to share the full gospel, the complete gospel, the unfiltered gospel. The gospel message is not simply an invitation to come to Jesus and add him to your already okay life. It's also not an invitation to come to Jesus to make your life more comfortable or more enjoyable. 
According to Jesus in Mark chapter 8, the gospel is a line in the sand. It is an echo of the words of Joshua to the people of Israel when he said, Choose you this day whom you will serve. To come to Jesus, based on the words of Jesus, is to die. It is to die to the love of self, to the love of sin, to the love of the pleasures of this temporal fallen world, and to say that Jesus is better. He's better than them all. He is the treasure hidden within the field. He is the pearl of great price. And anything and everything that I have to sacrifice to be his and to follow him, it's gone. It is absolutely true that the gospel is a gospel of grace in which we are powerless to earn our way to God. But that does not negate the fact that it is very costly to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, count the cost before you follow me. Count the cost. Like a wise builder, make sure that he can afford to finish the project before he starts. Make sure that you understand the cost that you will pay to follow me. Historically, in the United States, especially in the South, to identify with Jesus Christ has been a positive virtue for the most part. So much so that unbelievers were willing to take up the label of Christian to gain financial or political gain. But friends, I think you're aware that those days are are rapidly behind us. They are growing smaller and smaller in our rearview mirror. We're quickly joining the ranks of our brothers and sisters throughout church history for whom to be called Christian came with shame and hatred and persecution. And as real persecution becomes an increasing reality in our daily lives, we will find ourselves in the shoes of Demas having to choose between the suffering and the inconvenience and the shame that comes with following Jesus Christ or the potential prosperity and comfort and pleasure that could come with denying him. More than ever, we need Christians who understand the true gospel and who are committed to the true gospel and who proclaim the true gospel. The gospel that begins with the message that we are all sinners who have abandoned God, we've rebelled against God, that we are rightfully condemned before God. And not only that, but we are powerless to bring ourselves back to God. We're powerless to make ourselves right in his eyes. And therefore, we are in desperate need, the Bible says, of someone else to rescue us. We need a savior. We need someone to bring us out of this predicament of which there is no way out on our own. The Bible says that person is Jesus Christ, that he is the righteous one, that he is worthy. He lived the perfect life and sacrificed that life on the cross to pay for the wrath of God against the sins of his people. And then he rose again on the third day, proving that he is who he said he was. And he says to all people everywhere, if you are willing to repent and believe the gospel, turning away from from self and sin and the pleasures of the world to follow Jesus, the Bible says you will be saved. If you put your trust in him and him alone, that is the gospel. Demas, it seems, chose the pleasures and comforts of this passing world over the glory of Christ. Friend, will you make the same eternal mistake? Or will you trust the words of Jesus when he said, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels 
will find it. I pray that you will heed the words of Christ and find rescue for your soul that's so wonderfully available in him. Now, before we move on to the third and final part of Paul's closing remarks, there's one more truth that we need to mention that comes to light as we think about Demas and this situation of him leaving Paul. We need to understand that we should not be surprised when at times those who have been a part of the church and and seem to be genuine in their faith walk away. In fact, we know from Scripture that we should not even be surprised when some who are leaders in the church and appear to be faithful followers of Christ walk away. After all, Demas could not have had a better mentor. Other than the the 12 disciples under Jesus, I, I think we would all say if we had to choose someone else, we'd choose Paul to sit under, to learn from, to watch, to be mentored by. That's who Demas had as an example, as a teacher. And yet he fell away. So very quickly, let me answer this question that may be in your mind. How do we explain Demas? How do we explain those that are a part of the church for a time, perhaps even in leadership, high-profile positions, who then walk away? Have they lost their salvation, we might ask? The Bible says very clearly they have not lost their salvation, but instead have evidenced that they were never truly saved to begin with. This comes to us again from the pen of the Apostle John. John says in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many, many Antichrists have appeared, and from this we know that it's the last hour. Now listen to verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. By their leaving, abandoning not only the church but the gospel in Christ, they proved the true nature of their heart all along. They never really were transformed. Perhaps they liked something about the atmosphere, something about the people, something about the music, whatever it was. They, they were in for a time, it appeared, but their heart was never changed. It was never transformed, never regenerated and made new. And eventually that heart will show itself. In the case of Demas, that's what took place. But that brings us now to the third and final part of Paul's letter to the Colossians, part three, which is final instructions. Final instructions, verses 15 to 18. There are actually five final instructions that he gives to these Colossians, and they're very brief. We'll move through them very quickly, but let's look at them in turn. The first instruction that he gives is to greet local believers. Greet local believers. Look back at verse 15. He says, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. Now he turns the corner here. He's been giving greetings from his ministry companions to the Colossians. Now he calls on the Colossians to give greetings on his behalf to someone else. In this case, that is Laodicea. You'll see the map that we put up last week. At the top, it is a zoomed-in version there of the the Lycus Valley that follows the Lycus River. You'll see Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. Laodicea is the church mentioned here. You can see the proximity of the two churches. So he tells the believers at Colossae, I want you to give greetings to the people in Laodicea, which tells us that these churches had fellowship with one another. They knew one another. They were friendly with one another. 
The reason that he mentions Laodicea and not Hierapolis is because, as we'll learn, they were going to meet together to pass letters. We'll talk about that in a moment, but both of them were to share the letters that were given to them. And so he mentioned specifically, give greetings to these believers. It's a good reminder that we're not in competition with other faithful churches. We're on the same team, so to speak. We're members of the same family spiritually. We're seeking to fulfill the great commission together arm in arm. And we should maintain good, close relationships with other faithful churches, other faithful Christians. He also mentions by name now a, a lady, the only female on the list here in Colossians, he says, and also I want you to give greetings to Nympha and the church that is in her house. Now, as I said, this is the only reference to a female on the list, and the fact that he says it's her house, culturally at that time, must have meant that she was either a widow or a single lady that had financial means. That would have been the only explanation as to how she would have come to have ownership of of such a house that could host a local church. But that's the idea. The the church in Laodicea meets in her house. That is their primary meeting place. And this is an encouragement to us as we, we know nothing of this woman except that she's mentioned here and that the church met in her house. But it reminds us that that God is pleased when we use the gifts and resources he's given us for his kingdom. This is a Christian lady. She had a home. It was large enough. They needed a place to meet. She said, meet here. Many of you open your homes in our church for different gatherings. That, that's not nothing. That's ministry. It, it was enough here that Paul gave her a greeting in an inspired scripture. If you'd lived 2,000 years earlier and you opened your home, you might have been in scripture. But, but, but it matters, right? It matters, all of us, men, women, whatever giftedness spiritually and, and temporal resources God gives to us, he gives them to us to steward on behalf of his glory and the church. And we see that here in the life of this faithful lady. It's also a reminder of another truth that we've learned in church planting, which is that church is not about a building, right? We're raising money, we hope, Lord willing, in the future to have a building, but not because that's when we'll be a church, The church is the assembled people of God, right? Wherever the church assembles, that's where the church building is. In this case, they were assembling in this lady's home, and therefore that's where the church was located at that time. He moves on to a second instruction now that I've entitled, Read Inspired Truth. Read Inspired Truth. Verse 15, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha, the house that's in her house, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And for your part, read my letter that's coming from Laodicea. Now, this verse answers some questions and then raises others. Let's begin with the things it answers. First of all, we see that Paul wanted them, first when they received the letter, to have it read among the church, read out loud. Ultimately, this is how the New Testament would come to be in its current form. These letters were sent, they were read to the individual church they were given to. Typically, they would make a copy of the letter and then pass copies of the letter on to other local churches. We see that Paul's actually encouraging that to take place here. This proves, by the way, that Paul understood when he was writing that the words he was writing were not just for one local church, but that he was writing inspired scripture. 
In fact, we're really still obeying the command today. The letter's been passed down and passed down and passed down, and we're now sharing it here at North Lake Bible Church. That, that's what we're to do. These are the inspired texts of Scripture given to us through God's approved messengers, and now the, church, the church's life and doctrine is built upon these documents. We see that Paul understood that what he was doing was bigger than just sending a personal letter. But this verse also raises some questions. And if when we read that, it didn't raise a question in your mind, I just encourage you to look at the table of contents in your Bible of the New Testament and find the letter to the Laodiceans. Before you turn there, let me just tell you, you won't find one. And therein lies the question. We have the letter to the Colossians. We understand passing that letter on to the Laodiceans. But he says, and for, for your part, I want you to read the letter that's coming from them. Now, I had no idea, this happened sometimes when I went into my study, that I would spend so much time reading about the lost letter to the Laodiceans. Some people have way too much time on their hands. There's a lot of speculation as to this letter. Uh, theologians love mysteries, and so there are many theories as to what happened to the lost letter of the Laodiceans. But the truth is, we don't know anything more than this. For your part, read my letter that's coming from Laodicea. That's the sum total of the information the scriptures give us. But just to help you, I've, I've cut out most of the theories, but there really are only two plausible options as to what happened to the letter to the Laodiceans. We won't spend much time here, but just for your information. Some argue that the letter to the Laodiceans is actually the book of Ephesians that we have in our Bible. That argument's built on the fact that in the earliest manuscripts of Ephesians, there is no reference listed as far as the, the words to the Ephesians seem to have been added later by a scribe and then copied over and over again. So it could have been that the letter originally came to the Ephesians but was written as a circular letter that was meant to be passed from church to church. I think that's possible, but in my mind it takes a little more sanctified imagination than is necessary. I think the most likely option is option number two, that this is simply a letter to Laodicea that has been lost. It's a real letter that Paul wrote to the church in Laodicea that they were to share with the Colossians that we no longer have record of. Now, the biggest objection that people have to that idea, of course, is how in the world could someone lose an inspired letter of Scripture? How would anybody lose a letter from Paul? It is kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? And I would agree, except for the fact that we know of at least two other letters that Paul wrote to churches that we don't have. There are actually four letters written to the church in Corinth. We only have two. In 1 Corinthians 5.9, he mentions a letter that preceded our 1 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he mentions a letter that came between 1 and 2 Corinthians. So really, we have 2 and 4 Corinthians, if we want to be accurate. And so all of that to say, we know that it happened. We know that we don't have every correspondence that Paul ever wrote in his life contained in the New Testament. We have what God in his sovereign providence chose to preserve for us because this is what he desired to be in the canon of Scripture. And so it shouldn't bother us that there is this letter. Though we'd love to read it in God's providence, that's not what he had for us. Now enough time on that. Don't miss the point. The takeaway is that these local churches were in fellowship with one another. They obviously knew one another. And that Paul, again, saw his ministry not as defined within the confines of one local church, but to all the churches. And that the churches were to all take part in reading the inspired letters 
that God was having him write. That brings us now to a third instruction. Encourage faithful ministry. Encourage faithful ministry. He says in verse 17, Say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Now, we can't say too much about this man Archippus because we don't have a lot of information about him. The only other mention of him is in Philemon, verses 1 and 2, in the introduction to that letter. And some have speculated because of what's said there that perhaps he was the son of Philemon. If you look at Philemon, the first two verses, he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Now, there was obviously another house church meeting in this home, and because he mentions this, this lady Aphia and Archippus as also being household members of Philemon, some have speculated that perhaps Aphia was Philemon's wife and Archippus his son. That could be the case, but it's very difficult for us to say. What we can say is that obviously by calling him a fellow soldier in Philemon verse 2, we see that this was a faithful man. And in Colossians, the idea that he's been given this ministry by God, though we don't know what the ministry was because Paul doesn't specify, uh, is important as well. But really, the important aspect of this is the fact that Paul is telling the local church to be the one to come alongside this man and encourage him in his ministry. It may have been that Archippus was acting as the pastor of the church there now that Epaphras had moved on. We can't say that for sure, but some believe that to be the case. But we, we can be sure of the fact that it was the responsibility of the congregation to come around him and to encourage him to fulfill his ministry. Uh, we're not to read this as Paul getting on to this man, but rather trying to embolden him and encourage him to continue on, to persevere, to be diligent, to take heed to this ministry. It's a reminder to us that the members of the local church are to come around the leaders in their local church to be a joy to them, to encourage them, to pray for them. In so doing, they, they make the role of the leadership a joy as God intends for it to be. The writer of Hebrews hits on this idea in Hebrews 13, 17. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account and then he says, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And so from both of these passages combined, we have this idea that this is normal in the life of the church to encourage one another and for the members of the church to come alongside and encourage the leaders of the church to fulfill with diligence the ministry that God has given. Now, I mention that because I believe it's in the text, not because I believe it's lacking in our church. Let me be clear. This church is extremely uh, encouraging, supportive, and I, I love and appreciate each one of you. So I'm not, I'm not asking for cards and pies and all those things. So, <clears throat> so but I am very, very grateful for you, and I, I know I, I feel your love for me as well. That brings us to a fourth instruction. Paul says, pray with remembrance. Pray with remembrance. He writes in verse 18, I, Paul... Write this greeting with my own hand. Let's stop there for a moment. Now, you may not be aware of this, but it was common practice in that day 
to have what theologians call an amanuensis. Basically, that's a fancy word for someone that wrote as you dictated. Okay, they were scribes. And that's how Paul's letters were written. Paul would dictate the letter, and someone with, with, with really good handwriting that perhaps was trained formally as a scribe would write it in script that was small, that was legible. Because remember, writing utensils were not just readily available in Paul's day. And so when you did have a scroll, you wanted to maximize that scroll. Similarly to how when we type, the print comes out nice and clear and much smaller than perhaps we would write with our own free hand. That's the idea here. And so Paul uses a scribe. We know in this case that Timothy was that scribe because at the beginning of the letter, he mentions that it's coming from him and Timothy. Now, there is a danger that comes with that, right? Just as if we sent a letter that we wrote on a computer and it was all in, in print from, from the computer itself, anyone could write that letter and say that it was from Paul. So what they did at that time is at the end of the letter, the, the true author of the letter that was dictating it would write some kind of greeting in their own hand. And so there would be this obvious change in fact, the whole conspiracy theory about Paul losing his eyesight at the end of his life is probably a misunderstanding of this very fact. When he says, see with what large letters I write, it's because in comparison to the scribe, his handwriting was probably much larger. And that's the idea. So, but it would have been very obvious. And so as churches passed around these letters, they would have been able to compare the writing at the end of the letter and see it's genuinely from the Apostle Paul. That's why he says, I write this greeting with my own hand. That's a way of saying, this is the way I write. This is my actual handwriting. But what's really more important is what he actually says. What is it that he writes with his own hand? And he says two short but powerful things. He, he gives a request and then a benediction or a blessing. Let's look at the request here. He says, remember my imprisonment. Remember my imprisonment. Literally, Paul says, remember my bonds or my chains. And so picture Paul as he takes the pen now in hand to write these simple words at the end. He does so with his wrist chained. And so he says, remember my bonds. Remember my imprisonment for the Lord. And of course, we've already seen that the primary prayer request he had for his imprisonment is that God would use it for the advancement of the gospel. And so this is just a short little reminder. Don't forget to pray for me and for the ministry. But then he closes with one final instruction. Persevere in grace. Persevere in grace. The final words of Colossians echo the opening words of Colossians. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. Remember in the opening words in Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul said this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And now he ends similarly, now writing with his own hand, grace be with you. It's really easy for us to miss the impact of those words. Especially if you're a student of the New Testament, and you read the New Testament a lot, particularly with Paul, you get used to that ending. Grace be with you. It seems like, you know, sincerely Paul is the way we, we take that. But there's so much more to this than just well wishes and polite niceties at the end of a letter. There's rich theological meaning in what Paul says. Don't forget that the word grace means 
the unmerited favor of God given to those who have earned his wrath. The unmerited favor of God given to those who have earned his wrath. And we most often think about the grace of God in connection with our justification at the point of salvation when we, when we are regenerated and made new and declared righteous in the courtroom of God, so to speak. We think of, of grace then, and we should, because that is completely an act of grace. But Paul says not grace has been with you, grace be with you in the present tense. You see, there is a reminder here to all believers that we not only begin with grace, but we continue and we finish for eternity with grace. Justification comes by grace. Sanctification is continually accomplished by grace. And one day our glorification for all eternity will be accomplished by grace. And so it's a reminder to us that we desperately need the grace of God, not just to save us, but to be with us every moment of every day. You will not make one inch of progress in your sanctification if God is not lavishing you with his grace. You will not be able to serve uh, Christ with a whole heart in the right way if you are not a recipient of his continual grace. We desperately need grace. How will we ever hold on in the midst of trials? How will we ever persevere to the end? How can we be sure that we won't be Demas? Grace. Marvelous grace. And so you see, it's fitting for Paul to say, grace be with you. He reminds them, this is what you need. You need the grace of God just as much today as you did when you began in faith. William Hendrickson writes, it is this grace is God's favor in Christ to the undeserving, transforming their hearts and lives and leading them on to glory. That's this word grace. So there's no greater blessing that Paul could have left them with. If you want a benediction that's short and sweet, this is a good one. Grace be with you. It's difficult to wrap up the impact of a letter like this from the Apostle Paul that we've spent a couple of years working our way through. But let's take a few moments now and just think through the implications of these short and simple words at the end of Colossians. And we'll do as we have done over the last couple of weeks and end by asking ourselves a few questions. Number one, are we unwavering in our perseverance? Are we unwavering in our perseverance? I want to draw your mind back to the contrast between this man Luke and this man Demas. It's appropriate for us to be called again to stay the course Don't give up, come what may. Remain faithful to the end, to Christ and to Christ's followers, to the people of this church and to the ministry of the Great Commission. Don't be tempted by the comforts and pleasures of this life. Don't be tempted by the hardships of this life to turn away. Stay the course. Jesus is worthy, he is better, life is short. Eternity with him will be long and sweet. May that be ever before us. Secondly, are we generous with our resources? Are we generous with our resources? We're reminded of this this lady that was generous with what she had. 
opening her home, using the resources God had given so the church could be there in Laodicea. We're encouraged by her example to be lavish with the spiritual gifts God gives us, with the, the, the talents he gives us, and with the resources that he gives us. Whatever gifts God has given you in this life, are you stewarding them well for his glory? And then thirdly, are we walking in God's grace? Are we walking in God's grace? Let me ask you, how aware are you on a daily basis of your need of grace? Not past tense, present tense. For example, does it show up in your prayer life when you call out to God? Are you recognizing your need of his grace? Does it show up in the attribute of humility? As you serve, as you live life, as you seek to, to do what will please the Lord, is there humility there? That's a, that's a fruit of understanding our need for grace. When we recognize our dependence on God's grace, we won't strive for him in our own strength, but on our knees, begging for his power, for his strength to sustain us. It is true that we're to give our maximum effort towards serving Christ, but the Bible's also clear the only reason that will have any effect is because of the grace of God. If you're here this morning and you've kind of gotten in a rut and you feel like your, 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 your process of, of pursuing God in sanctification, perhaps of, of serving Him in the church, has become one that's frustrating or joyless, you just find yourself just lacking joy, then perhaps you've forgotten your need for grace. Perhaps you're seeking to strive in your own strength, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps as if that will ever work. No, we... We must do it propelled by grace. But here's the good news. The reason that Paul ends with these words, grace be with you, is because Paul is confident that for all who are in Christ, grace will be with you. He gives a blessing that is in accordance with the known will of God. God has said that he will give grace. In fact, Paul understands that all too well because when he prayed, God, take away this thorn in my flesh, what was the response? My grace is sufficient for you. And Paul says, Christian, his grace is also sufficient for you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, what a, what a wonderful letter. What a wonderful couple of years we've had just basking in these glorious truths, the all-sufficiency of Christ, the call to understand and proclaim the gospel, the, the call to remain steadfast. We've seen good examples, we've seen bad examples, but most of all we've seen you. We've seen that you are good, that your grace is what is needed, and your grace is what is supplied. That there is ample grace for those who are yours, who call continually upon you. Your plans for the church, this church locally, will not fail because you are sovereign and good, and your plans for the church globally will not fail, but will be accomplished exactly as you intend. God, help us to be faithful. Help us to love you more. Help us to depend on you more. We honor and glorify you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.